Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Today's story comes to us via a listener that we're going to keep anonymous because they are connected Uh, on a personal level, to the case we're going to talk about. This listener wrote to us in July, I believe it was, and this story takes us to the coast of Oregon to a small town you may not have heard of named Coquille. Before the year 2000, if you didn't live in the area, you almost certainly were not familiar with it. It's, It's just, it's not a place for a long time that made a lot of national news. And that's not a bad thing. You know, it's a close-knit community. It's the kind of place where everybody knows everyone else. And you can find thousands and thousands of quiet, bucolic towns like like this place all across the U.S. What we're saying is it, it was a relatively peaceful place until June of 2000 when a 15-year-old child named Leah Nicole Freeman disappeared. Here are the facts. At the time... She, you know, she was like any other high school kid. She was a freshman. Her boyfriend was a senior high school student. Uh, He was 18 years old, three years older. His name, Nicholas James McGuffin, or Nick, to his friends. That's right. And on the evening of June 28th of 2000, 
uh, Leah's boyfriend dropped her off at her friend Sherry Mitchell's house, uh, and there was an argument between the two girls, and uh, Sherry was upset and concerned about how much time her friend Leah was spending with Nick. The age discrepancy, I think, was sort of an issue. Um, he was considered to be a bit of a flirt, you know. He was kind of like this, you know, football guy, you know, kind of Lothario type, and I think that was likely of concern to her friend that she was going to get her heart broken, especially since she was so much younger. Um, and he had a bit of a reputation, you know, with the ladies, uh, the conversation turned into an argument and Leah stormed out. She left on foot just before nine o'clock that evening. Yeah. And there's a, an episode of 2020 you can watch that has a lot of details in here, uh, that we're going to be talking about today. And within those details, one of the things you learn is that, allegedly, at least according to witness statements, Leah would often want to go on a walk at night with her friend Sherry, but her uh, Sherry's mother would not like her to do that because Nick would often drive and pick up Leah while they were on a night walk, and then Sherry would have to walk home alone. Thanks uh, for the when, night walk shout out, Matt. Right? There you go. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's true. And there, there are two 2020 investigations, and we're going we're gonna to talk about both of them because they take two very different directions. I think it's safe to say. Um, that's a great point, Matt, that you're making about the feelings of Leah's mother, Corey Courtright, because she she was also concerned about the age discrepancy and uh, she was aware that the couple had become sexually active. Uh, this, you know, if you've ever had a high school romance, actually, if you're going through a high school romance right now, good luck. You know, you've got a lot going on and these can often be pretty tumultuous, right? Um, in, in the best of times. Uh, can you imagine being in a small town? Everybody knows whom everybody's dating or married to or fooling around with. Uh, there's, there's not much of a ability to keep things secret. So it was easy for people to find witnesses in a later investigation. She was cited at a, at a fast mart. Someone else said they saw her at a restaurant. And she was also seen by the high school. Um, the, the, thing about the, the thing about the location, and you can, you can get a sense of this if you look at the maps, when she leaves Sherry's house, it only takes a few minutes by foot to get to the high school. So it's not like she's roaming all across town. This is kind of a limited area where she's walking. And then some of the last witnesses, one sees Leah standing nearby or outside a payphone and remembers, this is all eyewitness testimony, remembers uh, seeing two men arguing, right? Not too far away from her in the vicinity. Let's also remember, too, like this is 2000, you know, uh, smartphones weren't a thing, like texting was barely a thing. I don't think it was like as in, it was p possible to do, but it wasn't as like in style as it has ultimately become like the only way people communicate. So it wasn't as easy to like track someone down or like get a check in. You know what I mean? That's hence the, the payphone. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's it's it's strange to think about that. I know. Fellow conspiracy realist, I know this sometimes feels like a splash of cold water whenever we point this out, but two, the year 2000 was 21 years ago. Yeah. The year 2000 is old enough to drink, if you think about it that way. The year it's 2000, Yeah. Uh, it's not old enough to run for president yet, so we've still got that. I think that's age, what, 35? 
I do believe that's correct. Okay. Hey, some of us in the crowd are eligible to run for president. Uh, back to back to this though. So Leah Freeman is uh, cited at a gas station, and one of the witnesses reports hearing a high pitched scream. They if if you look at what they say, they don't say they saw Leah Freeman screaming. They say they saw her and they heard a scream. So, like like you guys said earlier, Sherry's mom is not a fan of these night walks, like said earlier, uh, because she knows the score. She knows the pattern, right? She knows that this uh, senior, Nick McGuffin, is going to come into the picture at some point. He's going to pick up Leah, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Nick McGuffin goes to Sherry's house and he he goes he shows up with every expectation of picking up his girlfriend Leah only he learns that about this argument and he learns that she is left so and this is a reasonable thing I think almost anyone would do especially when you can't shoot a text to people he goes off to look for yeah and it's interesting because you see Nick uh talking on the record like in this 2020 um, special. It's called Last Scene Walking. Um, it actually, like you said, Ben, they combined footage from the original 2020 that was about the kind of period we're talking about with where it ultimately went, which we're going to get to soon. But he, he speaks about this and about how he was concerned and how he was driving around looking for her. He talks about how he, he couldn't shoot a text, and like we're saying. And he talks about all the places that he went. Um, you could walk to Sherry's house from the high school. Everything was, you know, just a couple minutes away on foot. Um, he can't find Leah there, so he contacts Leah's mother. Uh, he goes out searching. He's actually stopped by the police uh, twice while he's out looking for her because he had a, a broken headlamp on his car. Um, but he explains that he's out looking for his girlfriend. He's aware of the problem officers and he'll fix it immediately. But please let me uh, try to find my girlfriend. I'm concerned. And they let him go on his way with a warning. Around midnight, he contacts a friend named Kristen Steinhoff to give him a hand. And by 2 a.m., he gives up. He, he mentions in the interview that he drives by Leah's house and sees a reflection in the window or some kind of like glare. Mm -hmm. And he assumes that it's her TV on. Uh, and then he's like, okay, I guess she's good. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. But it also, I don't know. That's a little weird too. Cause you think he would, I don't know. Maybe he didn't want to disturb the, the, the household because he knew the mm -hmm. mom didn't like him and he didn't have a reasonable way of like getting her attention at that point. I guess that makes sense. I mean, you know, at that point, what could you do? You could like throw rocks at the window maybe or something right. like that. But classic, otherwise, classic move. you know, otherwise, I mean, imagine the perspective makes sense there. Cause imagine if you're the parent of some teenagers and you already are a little concerned about, what your kid's getting up to, and then her boyfriend shows up at 2 a.m. to talk to her. Right. That's no, it's, not a, that's totally, a really good look. Mom totally doesn't correct. like that. Yeah. Totally yeah. true. This is an important thing just to keep in your mind as we're going on in this episode. This person, Kristen, the friend of Nick, they, they met up together on the night that they couldn't find Leah. Just keep that in mind. He she becomes an, an important, uh, yes. important player mm -hmm. in the story. Yes. Keep Kristen Steinhoff in, in your mind for the rest of the show, she returns. Here's the thing. Uh, from McGuffin's story, it, it sounds like for understandable reasons, he 
assumed his girlfriend had made it home. He's not going to wake everybody up at 2 a.m. He'll just see her in the morning. And when dawn comes, learn she had not made it home. So the next morning, Nick goes to the police department to file a missing persons report. And he recalls in, in several interviews that police had told him she had most likely run away. You know, and they're thinking, well, this is, it, it's a teenager. Who knows what's going on with them? They may come back. Who knows, right? But no Yeah, and a lot of that had to yeah. do with the nature of how she left, right? In an argument yes. from mm-hmm. at least the authorities' understanding and perspective, that's how she left. Exactly, exactly. And no one seems to know quite where she headed off to. So Nick says that he started distributing flyers, missing flyers throughout the area. And Is this confirmed? He says it. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I mean, like it just seems like he, again, from everything that I've seen of him, he seemed to genuinely care for this girl and be, you know, it was really concerned. I didn't find a, a picture of the flyer, but I did find him saying that he had, he had done this in interviews. And the police contact him, right? They're the paramour of a missing person. Of course, you are going to be a person of interest. It doesn't matter. Uh, and so Nick goes in voluntarily for an interview. And in the course of the interview, according to him, he notices something off, something he wasn't expecting. He thought the investigators were turning his words around on him, you know, which is, by the way, why people need lawyers in general, right? Even if you were, even if you are completely innocent, you, you want to have a professional with you in those situations. Still, you can hear audio of the, mm-hmm. of, the uh, of the interview, and they are doing that. He says something about they're asking why what, what might have been a reason for her to run away. He says, "Well, she had depression, but he also said earlier that she was a very upbeat kind of person." They had do that move. It's like, "Well, which is it? Does she have depression or is she upbeat?" <laughs> and I mean, we all know that those things are not mutually exclusive, and that you, someone might not know you're depressed unless you're very close to them. And even if you seem like the most happy-go-lucky, upbeat person in the world, that doesn't mean there isn't a darker side to that coin, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. It's still, he is, you know, keep in mind he is he is young person. He doesn't have uh, a ton of experience. He's what, 17, 18, 18, at this, 18, 18 at this point? Yeah, yeah, he doesn't have a ton of experience being questioned by law enforcement. But he's still cooperating. He allows police to search his car, which he was driving that evening. It's a, it's a Mustang. And later, the investigation takes another turn. There's a mechanic who works a swing shift nearby. This mechanic is driving home, and he finds a shoe lying in the road, From what investigators say about this mechanic, he figured uh, some kid had left their shoe there, which is kind of unusual. Shoes are one of those things that you typically notice when you lose them. They're not like your keys or a a wallet or something. Uh, Especially if you're on a night walk. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. And so this mechanic picks up the shoe and he takes it home, which I thought was interesting because you could see that as a statement about what a small town this is. You know, yeah, I could actually get this shoe back to somebody. I could get the shoe back to someone. (laughs) You know, if you if you live in a a larger town, 
you're not going to touch a random shoe. No. You're right, though. It's funny. It's, like, it's something going to put out like uh, on the like neighborhood bulletin board. Missing shoe. Please mm-hmm. return, you know? Um, yeah. Does it feel a little weird to you guys at all? Like, yes. That they took they, a shoe out? Yes. Yeah. I think it's super weird. Okay. Because think about that. When's I mean, and this is a question for, for everybody listening to the show today. When is the last time you just walking in, in your neck of the global woods? When's the last time you just saw a shoe laying out? Just one I've shoe. Seen, I've seen a shoe. I've seen shoes, but I've, yeah. I've never touched them. I would never yeah. touch a shoe. I would not do that. A shoe is a very personal thing. <laughs> you know, it contains a... Uh, you know, it could, I don't know. It's just gross. Fun, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> not to sound like not to sound like a germaphobe, but I'm no. I'm, I'm with you. That's one of my no. first concerns. Anyway, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And so, to us at least, that that seems a little bit unusual. But that's that's what the investigators are saying when they're quoting this mechanic. Uh, who, by but the, the mechanic way, came forward voluntarily. Yes, the mechanic comes forward voluntarily when. The story of Leah Freeman's disappearance hits the news. It's it's the it's the biggest thing that's happened in a long, long time in the town, and and everybody in town is consumed with keeping up with this, with figuring out who might know what, who can help, like how can we band together and find this kid. Uh, because that's that's one of the strengths of small towns. They can really come together in things, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. Anyway, this mechanic comes forward, and the investigators are able to confirm this shoe belongs to Leah Freeman. They confirm this by uh, contacting her sister, and her sister is the one who's able to say, yes, that's my sibling's shoe. So where is the other shoe? Six days later. This is literally a waiting yeah. for the other shoe to drop situation. Uh, yes. So they do find the other shoe six days later, and things just look worse and worse. It's the 4th of July. It's about uh, 10 miles away where they find this shoe. Yeah, in a town called Hudson Ridge, and it had blood on it. Um, not a lot of blood. It wasn't like a gory horror show, but there, was, there were some blood stains on it. And the family insisted there was no possibility that Leah would have run away. That wasn't her style. She wasn't that type of girl, whatever. You know, they were in her corner in that respect. And the family insisted that there was no way that Leah would have run away. It wasn't like her. It didn't make any sense. They didn't see any problems. And they, they were, seemed relatively close. I mean, her mom knew that she and her boyfriend were sexually active. Obviously, she disapproved. But it didn't seem like she was some sort of helicopter mom. It seemed like they maybe her daughter trusted her to some degree and shared with her about these things. Uh, anyway, she knew what was going on with her daughter, so she just didn't 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 track for her. Um, well, and it was the, also a legal situation. Right? Absolutely, yeah. She was eighteen. She's fifteen. Statutory, yeah. Mm-hmm. It can be so. So yes, they find this second shoe. The in, for the entirety of the investigation. The family is insisting that there is no chance uh, Leah Freeman would have run away. And when they, you know, they find the shoe separated by miles from the other shoe, law enforcement logically begins to consider the worst possibilities. And there's a whole new place to look for her now. And there's a whole new place to look. And we're going to pause for a word from our sponsors and we'll return 
to follow up the investigation. We're not at the part where it gets crazy yet. We're just giving you the background. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. 
This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. So, fast forward weeks and weeks. It's August. Leah Freeman has been missing. Until August 3rd of 2000, when her body is discovered on a steep wooded embankment in Coos County, about eight miles from where she disappeared. And according to, according to people familiar with the area and according to McGuffin's attorney, uh, this, this part where, she, where her body is found is a very, it's a rural area. These are old logging roads, you know what I mean? Think like dirt roads. This is not a densely populated place. And unfortunately, because it had been out there, remember this is summer, her body had been out there for weeks. It was um, badly, badly decomposed due to the heat and due to the activities of animals. This complicates the investigation. The, The body is so damaged that it's very difficult to determine a cause of death. I can't help but think of Twin Peaks with this story. It really, you know, the whole Oregon setting, the kind of small town, the body discovered kind of out in the in the wilderness. Um, I don't know, really interesting parallel. This is obviously after the that show came out and had been in the public consciousness for a long time. But it's just Oregon has this kind of weird, creepy energy to it in terms of like the types of crimes because it's so isolated and it's seen as this very liberal kind of bastion, you know, with places like Portland and all that. But there really is kind of a crazy seedy underbelly to, to a lot of, you know, crimes like this that take place out there. And we'll get into the legal side of it later. That's interesting in its own right. But so the investigation, understandably, turned to Nick McGuffin because they have no other leads. Uh, they had already, you know, interrogated him. He became their prime suspect simply because of the fact that he was closest uh, to her and, it was just kind of he was an easy target, um, even though they had no solid proof. Um, he was just the most likely person and had the most uh, opportunity, let's just say. Yeah, you have to start somewhere. You know what I mean? That's that's not an unreasonable thing to do. So like like we we're saying earlier, the thing about small towns and folks, you know this if you've ever lived in one. Uh, rumors can spread very quickly dangerously. Communication is constant and it goes through uh, multiple channels. So a lot of members of the town start to turn on Nick McGuffin. They're stopping him in the street. They're calling him a murderer. He himself recalls being hospitalized for what he describes as an anxiety attack as well as a suicide attempt. In the interim, in this very dark time in his life, as you can imagine, he meets someone else, becomes romantically involved. They have a child together, a daughter. Fast forward years, right? The case is considered to have gone cold. McGuffin is, at this point, 
um, never arrested. He's never gone to a trial or anything. He's working uh, as a chef. He graduates culinary school, I think, uh, and he's he's having this daughter. A new police chief takes office, Mark Daniels, and Mark Daniels is very much focused. Some would even describe it as having tunnel vision. Uh, he's very much focused on solving this case, on solving this crime, and it makes sense because we have to remember this is one of the, if not the, most brutal crimes in the town's history. So he he wants to solve the case. So they reopen it years later. And this might sound odd, but it's not unusual. Well, no, I mean, it's like a cold case doesn't mean the case is closed. It just means they've sort of tabled it pending some revelation. They don't have, they probably don't have the staff to continue to just doggedly investigate a case like that when there's, you know, is, is that about the, the size of it? Kind of. I mean, there's no new leads, not, there's no new action to be taken because there's nothing to take action on. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the concept. But you know, it would take somebody like Daniels who, who made this kind of a flagship issue. And I understand why. I mean, this is a small town. People don't have closure. People feel like whoever this is that did this, if they've moved on from believing that it was Nick McGuffin is still out there. And it's just like, you know, as a new sheriff in town, I can understand why he would want to like make that right and and make people feel safe in this small town. So I get it, but you're right, Ben, about the tunnel vision. I mean, it's almost like uh, he was going to pin it on somebody no matter what. And, and you can tell he's, he's got that energy. He brings in 2020 and has them like embedded with him. He gives them full access to the point where it's like a little weird. In my opinion, it's like they're so in the mix that they create this like sense of, you know, they're on the side of law enforcement, no matter who they're pursuing. And they don't seem to be asking many uh, hard questions of Daniels, almost like a quid pro quo of like, well, you gave us all this access, so we're not going to give you a hard time about these choices that you made. That's just how I saw it. Hmm. In my eyes, it's it it's somebody who is aware of the pressure that law enforcement and the media can exert on a potential suspect, right? Um, so no matter who it is that as they reopen these case files, look at all the evidence again, no matter who it is that they think is their prime suspect, that person is going to have this pressure on them as they then begin fully investigating again. I guess what I'm just saying is like it almost felt like 2020 was opportunistic and a little bit irresponsible with the level of pressure they applied without seeing both sides. Yeah, this is this is yeah, this is exactly the point. So first, they're I think we're right about the pressure that media coverage can impart, but we also need to consider the pressure that the public can impart on law enforcement not getting this is um, not getting this is tantamount to not doing your job, right, in mm-hmm. the public's mind. And the public of the town is is divided on what they think is going on. And I, I do have some serious problems with the way 2020 did this because they it's an active investigation. And so from the law enforcement perspective, you could say this makes sense because by giving full transparency, they're showing not only the people of the town, but the people of the country 
who are now an audience in this investigation, that they are doing something, right? So you can understand how that's an advantage, but at the same time, that brings, like, if, if the internet was around in the form it is today during that investigation, it, can you imagine how inundated social media would have been? Can you imagine My how? My gosh. Yeah, on every level. That's what they're what they're doing in this 2020 piece, the initial one, is they're showing this investigation, but they're also sort of feeding the flames of the of the court of public opinion. And the court of public opinion doesn't really obey laws. So so Daniels and his team interview hundreds and hundreds of people, and they claim that they notice something odd. A lot of these witnesses, or at least a significant number of witnesses that they interviewed, were contradicting Nick McGuffin's story. And they would later say, we have witnesses on record saying that they did see Nick McGuffin and Leah Freeman together after 9 p.m., after she leaves Sherry's house. And that's where Kristen Steinhoff, whom we mentioned earlier, comes back into play. She seems to, in particular, uh, throw some monkey wrenches in, uh, well, in what this point is being considered an alibi. Yeah, the story we knew up until this point, at least, you know, that had been told to authorities and from other witnesses, was that she and Nick got in the car and looked for Leah, right? That That's at least my understanding of the understanding of these witnesses up to this point. Um, and that was it. That's all that happened. She was just trying to help, help Nick find Leah. And then that story changes completely. Yeah. What, uh, when they were hanging out at her house, she says they were in their bedroom, she and Nick, and they were doing drugs specifically. And you can see footage from some of these interviews specifically that they were doing methamphetamine, uh, and that they began kissing and things were escalating. And she cut things off because he was trying to escalate to sex, and so she stopped there and and McGuffin maintains that, yes, they kissed, but they didn't, like, he didn't try to take it further, and that they may have, they may have smoked marijuana, but that they were not smoking meth. And then there's something transformative, and not in the best way that happens. Remember we said, unfortunately, the body is so decomposed that you cannot readily determine a cause of death. At least that's what law enforcement is saying here. But an investigator is on television speaking to the public and just speculates that Leah Freeman may have been pregnant at the time of her death. There was no proof for this. This was, and to be fair, was phrased as speculation. But when you hear something like that, you know it's going to set a rumor mill ablaze, and you can't really retract it because people won't listen past that no. statement. It's an invest. It's a, a detective that says it, like speculating. Um, and then you know the the sheriff does 
I don't know. He's a little bit kind of finger waggy about it. He's like, well, that was just this man's opinion. They say that in the 2020 piece um, that it was never proven. He does say that. But you're right. You can't put that badger back in the bag. Once it's said, it gets people thinking. Then immediately in your mind, you're crucifying this guy as like a woman and baby killer. Yeah. Which is like the worst. Well, you know, that reminds me of guys that the recent Atlanta serial killer rumors that were spreading around Mm -hmm. and that person expert that brings necrophilia into the situation. You're like, what? (laughs) Now that's what we're dealing with? Okay. According to your opinion? Yeah. And I, you know, you have to, when you're conducting an investigation, you do have to speculate because that will lead you to the next part of your investigation. But that speculation maybe belongs in the office. Not on a TV. (laughs) Right, right. Not right before a commercial. Or something like that. And that's, and you're right, there's some finger wagging stuff there. But, but anyway, you can't, as you can't rebag the badger, you can't screw the lid back on Pandora's jars. Now people are convinced that this is what happened. Even though this guy, it was this guy's opinion, it is now being treated by members of the public as evidence. At this point, not only are these public, these problematic public statements going through, but Nick McGuffin still lives in town, and law enforcement and the people at 2020 are on his six all the time. They're, you know, they're following him at home, they're following him at work, they're seeing where his car goes. The 2020 people are ringing him off the hook trying to get an interview with him and he's when he doesn't want to do an interview eventually because this is the kind of show this was eventually one of the reporters just runs up to him when they see his car idling and starts you know firing off questions and this guy and uh, you know it's like he, a mic in the face moment kind right. of you know what i mean yeah mm-hmm. and and so he he drives away but uh this well, he, what does he say, though? He, he does say one thing. They say, like, you say, I just want to know what it's like. And then Nick says, what do you think it's like? Yeah. And yeah. then hauls ass. Mm-hmm. What, how do you think I feel or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And he obviously is responding from a, like, a, a very emotionally upset place uh, because he's been he's been surveilled so extensively and not only has he been surveilled but he's being surveilled in a very public manner everybody else in town is aware of this right it's getting reported in the news and then this 2020 thing is going to come out so august 23rd after this 2010 they have a highly publicized arrest 2020 is still embedded they have called in the cavalry there are different teams getting ready for the arrest. There's a helicopter involved keeping track of him. Uh, The idea being that he might try to make a run for it, so they would need to be able to track him from the air. Uh, He is arrested without incident, really. He's not, you know, he's not trying to resist arrest. He's not fighting back, etc. And after this arrest, he goes to trial, and legally, this is where it gets in a bizarre place. So he gets convicted, but he doesn't get convicted of murder which would have a life sentence for him. He gets convicted of manslaughter in 2011, and he gets a 10-year sentence, and not everybody on the jury is convinced. 
he is convicted by what's known as a non-unanimous jury. Ten people vote guilty for manslaughter, two vote innocent. And Ben, you dug up that this is a uniquely Oregonian thing. Yes. Or maybe there's a few other places, but it is definitely unusual. In the Yeah, in the United States, Oregon is the only state that allows for non-unanimous jury convictions for pretty much every felony except for murder. So because two people were against this on the jury, he gets acquitted of the murder. That has to be a unanimous decision of the jury, but the manslaughter charge does not. So that's why it might sound really weird otherwise to hear what on the face of it sounds like someone murdered somebody and they got a 10-year sentence. That's a WTF moment. But but so they, they, they have multiple charges knowing that they might only get one? Like if it's one crime, how come it's it's uh, they're 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 charging him with with murder and manslaughter? Well, he's ev- eventually convicted of manslaughter. We just know that he was uh, acquitted of the murder charge. And here's the thing: this is where the story actually starts, folks. Hope you enjoyed the first forty minutes. <laughs> Almost immediately, it was clear that there were deep, profound problems with this case. Here's where it gets crazy. Uh, okay, I, I I wrote this in, in kind of a messed up way. Uh, Nick McGuffin is a free man now. Nick McGuffin's uh, conviction was overturned. It was overturned by the decision of a county circuit judge named Patricia Sullivan. In 2019, she says that uh, this case this case won't fly. It's a violation of constitutional rights. Uh, It turns out that Nick, who had been in prison for nine years of his 10-year sentence and maintaining his innocence throughout the whole almost a decade, it turns out that there was stuff law enforcement didn't want him, his lawyers, or the public to know. I think that's fair to say. I I think they didn't want people to know. No, you're right. After further examination, it was found that, remember those two shoes that were discovered, Leah's shoes? Uh, There was DNA, not amazing samples of DNA, but DNA that was from a male that was not Nick. And that evidence was not presented at the trial. So it was not known by the defense that there was another possible suspect's DNA present on major evidence in the case. Yeah, I thought it was weird that we hadn't heard anything about the bloody shoe. Like, it just didn't come up. Right. Yeah, the thing about the DNA in this case, it's strange. Not all DNA samples are created equally. It's funny because I was thinking of comparisons here. Like, we brought up an excellent point about resources. And a lot of of these investigations are cash-strapped. Like I was uh, speaking to someone in Louisiana recently who told me that they were convinced they could solve some crimes if they could just get like $3,500 approved to do some DNA tests that they have waiting around for like three or four separate cases. And that that seems strange. But anyway, these these folks are struggling with what at the time is a new technology that's not as advanced as it is now. So McGuffin gets an attorney, Janice Purikow, 
and she's working with something called the Forensic Justice Project. They're based in Portland. They're a nonprofit entity that focuses on either preventing wrongful convictions or correcting them. And she says there is no evidence against him being Nick McGuffin. He just happened to be her boyfriend at the time. There were no eyewitnesses. There was no DNA connecting him to the crime. There was no other evidence that tied him to anything that happened to her. Quick note, when she says there's no eyewitnesses, she means there's no eyewitness that, like, sees him engaging in an act of violence against Leah Freeman. And Puracal is the one who figures out this DNA evidence. She only learns about it, like, again, almost a decade past this original conviction, where it's not brought up at all at trial. She only learns about it because she's sorting through all the old paperwork from that first trial. And if you read news about this, older news, and, like, the news that comes out when she makes this uh, DNA request, which I think is around 2017, you'll see you'll see the same line popping up in the news, which is something like the DNA analyst at the time didn't disclose this information due to an internal policy, quote-unquote internal policy. That's the official reason. And this, the decision that Judge Sullivan makes is simply that Whatever that internal policy at the time was during the investigation, which we can talk a little bit about, uh, it was no longer the standard when the case went to trial. So some policy they had in 2001, 2002, when they found this DNA, was no longer up to snuff when it would have actually mattered in a court of law. Does that make sense? Yep. And, you know, to be fair— uh, law enforcement, the Department of Justice, they're still defending that decision not to disclose that DNA. Yes, and a gentleman named Paul Rime, who's with the Oregon DOJ, he defended that that policy, saying that the authorities were, quote, very cautious back then because they didn't know about all the DNA stuff that was out there. So they were cautious and conservative in their report writing. Is he saying that just DNA technology wasn't what it is today? Well, in a way, it wasn't right in the year 2000 right. That's true. to an extent. Uh, but at the same time, if you've got such a small sample, maybe that's a trace from a family member. Uh, you know, she lived with people, maybe another friend. She goes to school. You know, she's doing volleyball and other things. I'm I'm just imagining that if it's a trace, like a small enough amount of DNA, right, that you can't actually identify, maybe it's not worth even pursuing. We're talking about the blood, though, specifically, right? There's traces of male DNA found on both shoes, so the clean both shoes, the so not necessarily yes. the blood. It was right. just yeah. you swab it. Like somebody that some, grabbed it. Yeah, yeah. A, a blood stain would have, one would imagine, enough. Um, yeah, it would meet the threshold of DNA. But this, if we look at uh, Crystal, the statements of Crystal Bell, who is the Forensic Service Division Director for OSP, the Oregon State Police, uh, we'll see that Bell tends to agree and says that the interpretation guidelines they had didn't, this is a quote from her, didn't necessarily distinguish or discern really low levels of DNA. So analysts at the time were, they had personal discretion over what they decided to report, but basically they needed to be very, very sure 
of what they were saying. So Bell is stating that this analyst wasn't 100% sure what they were looking at, right? Uh, That was how little they found. But she also, Bell that is, also claimed that, hey, if someone had asked for this evidence to be reexamined, the lab would have done so. There's a problem with that, though, because the people who would have been the people asking would have to know that the DNA sample existed, which they didn't until 2017 when Perical found out about it and made that request. And so the judge, so, so their case to the judge was, hey, if the jury knew this, would it make a difference? And the judge, Sullivan, eventually said, yeah, I think it will. Uh, so overturn the conviction. What does this mean for Nick McGuffin? Well, it means that he still loses nine years of his life. Yeah, he basically served his whole sentence. I mean, you know, he obviously has grounds uh, for um, a lawsuit and hopefully for some reparations uh, for that time, but you can't get it back. Something that I feel has been weirdly absent from all of this reporting is we know because of the decomposition and the, you know, um, effects of animals on the body um, that, that a true cause of death was never able to be determined. But I mean... There was nothing like strangulation. There, there was no signs of struggle. Like you think that'd be the kind of stuff that you'd hear reported on. It was. It was. Her body was there for six so weeks. Bad. Right. Yeah. So, so bad. Yeah. So it's more than a month. It's it's hard unless you unless you've voluntarily looked at some of that stuff or uh, researched it. You don't understand the what a body looks like after six weeks. Yeah. The the degree of decay. So there's no retrial. Also, you should know, we should note, Sullivan clearly, explicitly in her ruling says, me overturning this conviction is not the same thing as me saying Nick McGuffin is innocent. I'm saying he had his rights violated. But there's not a retrial. Uh, the attorney at Coos County, the district attorney, Paul Frazier, says he had several factors in his decision. He said the lab report, the death of key witnesses, and the original non-unanimous jury decision all played into his reasons for not having a retrial. And on a personal note, he says also Leah Freeman's mother didn't want to experience the profound strain of a second trial. But That's not really the end of the story. This leads us to two deeply disturbing questions, and a lot of us listening along at home can guess what they are. First, who actually is responsible for the the death of Leah Freeman? Second, what other cases have exculpatory evidence, like DNA, that would overturn a case? What kind of evidence is there that if it were revealed— could free innocent people incarcerated today? That second question is tough to answer for certain. But a case like this indicates that it is possible that there are similar situations out there, not just in Oregon, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. That first question, though, is the the point of this episode. So we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll ask, who killed Leah Freeman? Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. 
She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle. And I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. 
Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At first, it might seem that having DNA means it's only a matter of time before police do find another person, a man, somehow involved with the case. It's true. I mean, DNA has led to the reopening and even the resolution of other unsolved murders, other assaults, and will do the same in the future. But like we said, not all DNA is the same. This isn't enough to determine a specific match. It's enough to, when compared to MacGuffin's DNA, determine it's not him. Whomever left this was not him. But that's about it. Other than the fact that it's a male, that's about it. Well, yeah. And we, you know, we, we've heard from a listener who's knows someone who's connected to this case. And then we're going to leave it at that. But the, they, the, there is potentially a name associated with that sample. Um, again, we cannot confirm this, but that, that is what we were told. And, and it checks out that this person is in contact uh, with someone who has intimate knowledge of this case. Um, why that name was never released is very interesting. It, it likely has to do with some of the thresholds that we're talking about or, you know, the idea of um, not wanting to muddy the waters further, maybe. I, it's it's just, it's very odd that, that a name was never released. All the, and, and yet they were willing to drag this guy, Nick, you know, through through the mud for, for years and years and years um, with all the surveillance and stuff. But this person who's close to the case uh, made the comment that if Nick wasn't the one who did it, that he likely has knowledge of what actually happened. And because of the way the investigation has gone and him being exonerated, that's case closed, essentially. I mean, they would have to open a new case, right? Or how, how does that work? If someone is convicted and it's overturned, does that mean back to the drawing board for investigators? Now we're looking for a new suspect. Or does it mean that maybe he did do it? He served enough time that likely all parties are satisfied. Like I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just wondering. Yeah. Like what's this, what's the next step? Well, the DA seems to have seems to have indicated it was their decision not to have a retrial. So that could have been a possibility. Um, and, and I think you put that very well, Noel. Again, to this listener, we appreciate you. Um, profoundly for for reaching out with this, and we do want to protect anonymity here. But there, there's also the possibility that someone associated may have died. I believe may have passed mm-hmm. away. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So there are other bits of evidence as well. You'll see descriptions of uh, paint chips found on Freeman's shirt that don't match the paint around McGuffin's car. But again, at this time, there is not an easily determined cause of death. And this leads to speculation uh, that's pretty prevalent 20 years on about her demise. Uh, People will speculate, not prove, but speculate that Freeman may have been struck by a car and that whomever struck her with the car realized that they had killed her and decided not to report the death. So instead, they took her body away to that rural area and left it there. And if that is the case, then they got away with it, at least for now. 
Yeah, that I, that's mentioned in that 2020 piece, and it's kind of just thrown away, right? It's mm-hmm. like there, you know, there are a ton of theories. One of them said that happened, but we decided that didn't happen. Yeah, uh, but, but 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 why? Like like again, right. if there's no if there's no defensive wounds, or there's no like something indicating that it was. I just never heard anybody say that. It is weird the shoes were found so far apart. That does indicate that maybe the body was moved or something like that. Maybe. What's the scenario where one shoe comes off? In one place, and then as they're driving, another shoe comes off 10 miles away. Is it someone fighting and struggling to escape a vehicle uh, where the shoes, one shoe comes off as she's being put into a vehicle, and then another comes off as she's being taken out of a vehicle? I mean, I I just... Yeah, I mean, that, that that is sort of the weird thing here like how, how why so far away and the two shoes that, that is you're right Matt I don't understand that scenario either but I still think it's odd they just discount the idea that she was hit by a car and not to joke but it, it is it does seem like this town has a history of picking up people's shoes uh and you know taking them home <laughs> or maybe like taking them elsewhere I don't know it's, it's I don't very, know if they have a history of that okay but, maybe uh, not a history <laughs> but it's see there's a history of one <laughs> A sample size of one. Um, It's just an odd thing. It's an odd thing. Yeah, it is. And it leads to questions that can be disturbing, but they're necessary to ask. There are any number of scenarios that could lead to this happening, right? It could even... Here's another thing that people don't point out. We know the order in which the shoes and the body were found, but we don't know the order in which they ended up where they ended up, right? So I think it's it's logical to assume that the first shoe was maybe the first thing that got dropped at its location. Maybe, but it's not for certain. We don't know the order of operations. We don't know the timing here. And unless you speak to the person who did this and they admit to it and they tell you, then it's highly unlikely that people will ever know. Uh, in the, the rumors will continue because regardless what you think about Oregon State Police, regardless what you think about the innocence or the guilt of Nick McGuffin, it is very clear that this case was botched, and it's very clear that public opinion played an influential role in how the case proceeded, right? And this is not us commenting on McGuffin's innocence in in any way. This is just us saying here, you can tell where things went off the rails, and that DNA was important. But For his attorneys, it goes far beyond that. The mishandling of the case, as they would phrase it, uh, extends to not just withholding evidence, but uh, to accusations of officers fabricating evidence or coercing witnesses or, again, small town, going around and spreading rumors. You know what I mean? Like the, the implication is, and this is not a specific thing, this is just a hypothetical example. The implication is, Let's say you work on the force that's investigating this. You're hanging out, you know, you're in a barbecue or something. It's like one of your friend's kid's birthdays. It could be something that casual. And then you say, you know, I can't say anything on the record, but I have, you know, blah, blah, blah. Stuff you could never get away with saying in public or in court. It's very true. And now, guys, you know what we have to do? We have to jump to 2020 again. 
but not the show or yes. the original show, the year. Yes, the year. <laughs> 2020, yes, last year, uh, where everything was clear in retrospect, right? Uh, today, yeah. Nick McGuffin is free. He lives in the Portland area. He works as a chef, and he filed last year a federal civil rights lawsuit against the local police, against Coos Bay, against the Oregon State Police Departments, and against the sheriff's office. And both he and his legal team say, we consider this death an open case, and we're also looking or hoping for answers to who killed Leah Friedman, which is interesting given from what we learned from people connected with this. Again, uh, like you said, Noel, one of whom stated if it wasn't McGuffin, then at least this person seems convinced that he knows more than he's letting on, right? Was that the sense of it? Yeah, it's it's, it's an odd situation, uh, and it largely has to do with the it's it's basically a technicality, you know. It does not remove him from the list of possible people who could have committed this crime because uh, his rights were certainly violated. Um, but it, it's it's weird because it's 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 like a it leaves so many questions hanging, and it feels like closure is is never going to happen. I just, I just have to wonder how how this affects people who live in that town and how this affects the sheriff. He's obviously never going to claim that he did anything wrong. Um, he seemed very righteous in his actions um but it's so up in the air i can't imagine that anyone feels particularly good about it right yeah i think it's fair to say i mean this this means that it's quite possible that law enforcement does have other suspects but they can't disclose their names maybe due to a lack of compelling evidence and this is i know like we're talking about the dangers of speculation but this is something I was thinking of. And I, I have not been in direct contact with law enforcement on this one. If they were indeed incorrect, their first step in solving this case or their first attempt to do so, can you imagine how disastrous it would be to be wrong twice? That is something I think they file under avoid at all costs. Is it weird to think that they thought they were right for nine straight years? Or at least they convinced themselves they were right for nine straight years. Yeah. And they maybe they could just do that again. Yeah. <laughs> and get somebody else innocent. Okay, sorry. Uh, but this lawsuit, it does allege some pretty damning stuff. The, the lawsuit that McGuffin is bringing on the federal level says that they created an entire false narrative based on, quote, junk science including fabricated polygraph results, other fabricated evidence. We already know that polygraphs are, I'll say it, they're, they're malarkey. Can we say malarkey? Who is it who's been saying malarkey? Is it Joe Biden? Does he own that one now? <laughs> I think that is a Biden. It, it is Remember, kind like, of a someone grumpy took over, old man thing to say. Yeah, yeah, someone took over the word maverick too. I, anyway, uh, but they, anyway, it's, polygraphs are not solid proof of what they're often purported to be proving, right? And there's an excellent, um, I believe it's tech stuff. There's an excellent tech stuff episode about the, the actual technology of polygraphs. Anyway, uh, they also say that police did something they're not supposed to do, which is suppress or tamper with or even destroy evidence that undermined the credibility of witnesses, including evidence of their own misconduct. 
uh, evidence of their violations of this guy's rights. And again, on their part, the investigators on the case maintain that they followed procedure. You know, they're saying, we're not trying to cover up something. We just had this policy about DNA at the time, and it didn't fit our threshold. That's that's what their perspective is, and that means the rumors are going to continue. Twenty More than 20 years on, many people in the town of Coquille feel that they're still going to wait, like you said, Matt, for closure, for justice. And rumors can be dangerous and unfounded, and speculation can quickly erroneously turn into some sort of truth when everybody just happens to agree. But at this point, we know that we know that the facts don't all seem to add up. What do you guys think about this? Well, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what you think. Why don't you uh, why don't you write to us? Find us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, any of the social medias. Let us know uh, how you feel. If you've got any information, like the person who reached out to us, maybe there's something we need to know. Please find us. We are Conspiracy Stuff on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. On Instagram, we are Conspiracy Stuff Show. If you don't want to contact us that way, you can use your telephone. That's right. You can call us at one eight three three stdwytk Leave a message at the uh, sound of Ben's dulcet tones and you will have three minutes to tell us your story ask us your question it's all yours do whatever you wish with it um just please let us know if it's okay to use your voice uh, on the show and then you might hear it on one of our weekly listener mail episodes um make sure to let us know what to call you happy to go with anonymous whatever makes you comfortable hey and if three minutes is not enough time for you to leave a message and everything you want to say why not send us a good old-fashioned email we are Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.